All right, well, let's get started, and I will open us up with the word of... Yes? It's coming around. There's a sign-up sheet. And if you don't, if, you, if you're not able to bring something and you want to make a donation to help out with the paper goods, that works well also. So there's a... Yeah, we'll have water to drink, but that'll be it. Margarine so. machine? Gary, back in the corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's going on with you, Gary? What did you put in his breakfast, Jan? <laughs> okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are gathered here again on this Tuesday um, to resume our journey through your word. And as we have done the last few weeks, we do want to remember Linda Manners' um, sister-in-law, Diana, who is fighting glioblastoma. And we just ask prayers of healing and strength and comfort for her and for the family and prayers for her doctors um, as they make their way through this really quite frightening diagnosis. And um, it is a reminder for us all about why there is Christmas and the gift of your son Jesus who has come to put this world right. And Paul in his letter to the Corinthians and in all the letters he writes and all the work he did was proclaiming to the world that indeed everything had changed with the coming of Christ and help us to hear Paul well. May your spirit move among us and fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm today as we close out this uh, very lengthy letter from Paul to the Corinthians. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And last week we did the first little opening paragraph of the 16th chapter. And that was a paragraph in which Paul expressed his desire to go to Macedonia and to visit, to visit the... Um, to go to Thessalonica and visit these people because he is their senior pastor. It's clear that they view him that way and that he views himself that way. All right? And, and he, but he also says he just hasn't been able to do that um, and really lays it at Satan's feet is the reason that he hasn't been able to do that. So he has sent Timothy to Thessalonica and um, that's about where we're picking it up with the, um, in the 16th chapter at the 5th verse, at the 10th verse, okay? 10th, <coughs> excuse me, 10th verse, okay? That's a big thing, that's about where we stopped last week, right? So here's what he writes. He says, now when Timothy comes to Thessalonica, See to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. What would that be? Probably the persecutions. Remember, Paul was chased out of town. So that lends a whole tenor to the climate in Thessalonica. And, and, and if you understand that, then you can understand why, why Paul is concerned for Timothy. But of course, the work has to go on. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has a long list of everything that he has endured for the purpose of spreading the good news. So they know what they're doing. They know it's not um, that there's danger in it, but they're going to do it anyway because this is the biggest news the world ever received. All the news ever since 
about big doings and big happenings and everybody wants to think they're in the biggest, most important, most challenging, most time that ever existed. Uh, no. The climax of human history was 2,000 years ago. The most important, the most important event that ever happened in human history, 2,000 years ago. And we're about to celebrate um, that with, with Christmas, right? So Paul and Timothy and the rest of them have been going around doing this, enduring many things. So he writes, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am, right? And as I've said before, when you come to these stories, don't think that everything you get in your New Testament is telling you the whole story of what's happening around the Mediterranean. There are other Christian evangelists. You meet a few other ones besides Paul and his immediate circle, but there's other ones out there doing this work, spreading this good news from place to place. Their stories just aren't preserved for us as the church preserved Paul's letters and the book of Acts. Verse 11. No one then should treat him with contempt. With contempt. You know, Timothy's young and elsewhere in Paul's letters he's more explicit about not not turning away from Timothy because of his youth. The fact that he's young doesn't diminish the truth and the power of the proclamation that he is bringing and the teaching that he's bringing. You know, sure, um, being old is spectacular. <laughs> okay? <laughs> They're all looking at me as a scan. What, Scott? Did you actually say that? Yeah, being old is spectacular. But, and sometimes when you get older, it's easy to think that young people, ah, oh, what do they know? You know, they haven't been around much. They haven't been through the school of hard knocks and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is the truth. And the teaching is the teaching. And the good news is the good news. And, um, for example, for us here at St. Andrew, Lauren knows that as well as I do. Okay? And, and, and just because she's 27 years old doesn't mean she doesn't have a lot to share with us all. I learn stuff from her all the time. She has a really, really beautiful perspective on the good news and what we're about here. And so Paul is commending Timothy to these people and telling them not to hold him in contempt. And I suspect it's because of the youth issue, given referen other references in his letters. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. So this is a group. What do they call it now? A posse? A posse. <laughs> An entourage. A po a po this is a group that works with Paul. So like if you were going to um, chart it out, you would have Paul at the center probably and Timothy and Silas and other people who get involved more and less and Paul sends some out, they're going to go do this and they're going to do this. As this ministry moves around the Mediterranean, founding these colonies of this new human race, this race of humans reborn in Christ. 
this race we call Christians. And um, so it's, it's not easy in Paul's letter in the book of Acts to exactly nail down who's where when, because that isn't the purpose of the letters, is to, is, is to nail down exactly who's where when, but you get a lot of glimpses at the movement that's happening. And then he moves on in verse 12. And he says, Now about our brother Apollos. Apollos. Now we, 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 are, we were introduced to Apollos back in the first chapter. So let's go back there and just... Because it was months ago. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, don't you? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, maybe last year. Maybe pre-COVID. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, we'll read into it just to remind ourselves of, you know, Paul has so many topics in this letter that it's hard to kind of remember where you've been in the letter. So many topics. But he opens with what topic? The topic of unity. The topic of unity. Verse 10 in chapter 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there should be no, no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, that's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Okay. So that's, so there you have the reference to Apollos. We could look at Acts um, 18 where we also meet Apollos. Apollos is an evangelist. Most people don't even know Apollos exists. He's an evangelist spreading the good news. Now in Corinth, um, in his travels, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. This is a husband and wife who have been chased out of Rome along with all the other Jews and Jewish Christians have been chased out of Rome under a decree by the emperor because there was trouble in Rome in the Jewish quarters. So he just said, get them all out. So they all are chased out. And so Priscilla and her husband make their way and they end up in Corinth. And that's where Paul meets them. They also meet Apollos. And we're told that Apollos is a Christian evangelist. He's a good guy. But he is confused about baptism. His, uh, his, his teachings about baptism are, are kind of off the mark. He understands the baptism of John, which is a baptism merely for repentance, but he doesn't understand the baptism of Christ, the one that Christ commissions the Christians to do at the end of the book of Matthew. For that baptism is a baptism of rebirth of rebirth and and into this into the family of Christ into this new human race into the into the body of Christ 
So he doesn't, he doesn't get that. So Priscilla and her husband pull him aside and they teach him. They teach him, to, you know, it's just instructions, just to teach him. So he, that's how would, you can imagine that happening tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold across the Mediterranean as the Christian movement is spreading. Because there are a lot of things, there, there are a lot of things to learn. Christianity is not content free. There's a lot of unlearning because it challenges the way, the way people's, uh, people's most fundamental assumptions about the way the world works. It challenged them then and it challenges them now. So I've learned that here, even in the 21st century, there's a tremendous amount of unlearning that people have, that we have to do to understand the good news and to grasp the sheer wonder of what God has done in and through Jesus. And it's not easy. It's not easy. I think Paul understands that. He's, that's why he uses words like we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will know what is good and perfect in the will of God. So it's and that's why we do this. And that's why we keep going back over it. And it's, there's, it's the only way to do it. You just have to keep it going, because it's not like learning chemistry. When you take a chemistry, I took a chemistry course in college. Here, here's, I'll tell you my quick story. This is an interlude. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I went to college between my, for a while, took some courses and lived there in the dorm between my junior and senior year in high school. And so I had really kind of liked chemistry because I had been inspired by my chemistry teacher in high school. So I signed up, but I'm like, you know, I don't know. I think when I was 17, I looked like I was 12. <laughs> and I'm on the college campus, you know, and I'm, I'm gonna go to this chemistry class and I go into this room and I sit down and they're all in the middle of the book. And I'm too timid and kind of scared to, because I'm from Minden, Louisiana, you know, what, whatever, to say anything. And I'm trying to follow along and follow along. And after a couple times of that, I go to the teacher and says, I'm just kind of lost. Why did you start in the middle of the book? He goes, what class do you think you're in? I said, chemistry 101. He goes, no, this is chemistry 102. That's why we started in the middle of the book. You need to go next door. That's Chemistry 101. They will start in the mid at the beginning of the book. But of course, I had already missed two days. So, <laughs> oh yes. So anyway, when we come to a chemistry class, you don't really have to unlearn a bunch of stuff. You only have to learn it. Nobody is filling your heads up with notions of organic chemistry when you're four and five and six and 10 and 12 years old. But when you're four and five and six and 10 years old, our heads are getting filled up with all kinds of ideas and assumptions about the way the world works, what the values are in this world that matter, right? What's ethical and what isn't, all of that, just filled up with all that stuff. And so when you come to something as blindingly counter-cultural as 
um, the Christian proclamation, you have a lot to unlearn before you ever begin to learn. And if you don't get that, I think it's, I think it's one of the reasons for some people, they just, it never really clicks for them. Because they don't realize how much, they don't really realize how much they need to leave behind to come to a topic like the resurrection. Okay, so that's what's happening with Apollos. Any thoughts, questions about that small rant or story? Really? I was 16? That explains it all then. I was, I was a baby. Yeah, I was there with all those college kids and all those college girls, and I, I didn't know what to make of any of that. That was like, uh, I went to one class, and there was this girl there, and she looked just like Vivian Lee in the Gone with the Wind. That's Vivian Lee, right? Right. I mean, black hair, fair skin, blue eyes. I was like, I don't even know what class it was. I didn't hear a word the whole time. It was just like, what? Okay, enough of that. I have stories to tell, but I need to stop. So here he goes. Now about our brother Apollos. Paul is not in competition with Apollos. They're both ministers called by God to this work. Apollos, I don't know any, I don't think Apollos was meant by Jesus, but I don't know. I don't know what his story was. But he pops up several times in the New Testament. So, now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with, to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now. No explanation. But he will go when he has the opportunity. Okay? So we don't know what's going on with Apollos in his life, what's happening. But he's going to go. And the interesting thing to me is that Paul wants him to go. You see? That tells you that when you read in Acts 18 that he was mixed up about baptism. There's no, nothing wrong with that. Nothing, nothing, he needs to learn, but there's no like, shame in it. He just, he just needs to learn the right, a little more about baptism. And Paul commends him, urges him to go up to Thessalonica and help them. So then he writes to them in verse 13, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Constant. These are constant admonitions from Paul. Began very early. His first letter is a letter to the Galatians. And in that letter, it's just, they have not stood firm. And he can't believe it. He just can't believe that so quickly, you know, they have lost their way and listened to the wrong people. In 2021, it's not 2021, is it? In 2022, or in 2023, which is fast upon us, we have to stand firm, right? The culture wants to turn Christianity into one thing. We have to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. When it comes to Christianity, the culture is not our friend. In 50 
AD, the culture was not Christianity's friend. In 1000 AD, the culture was not Christianity's friend because the good news is about leaving the darkness, which is the world, and stepping into the light of Christ. And I was just doing this yesterday in 1 Thessalonians where Paul's talking about night and day. The world, he says, the world is the night. We must live in the day for we are the people of the day. We are the people of the day because we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have met. Right? We have been reborn. We are a new human race in whom dwells God's Holy Spirit. All of that stuff, which sounds like just so many words, it's not just so many words, it is the truth. And it makes Christianity always countercultural to the culture in which it's trying to exist. And, and, and it's often, it's if, you, if you try to see it as, a, well, you know, we can just accommodate ourselves to the culture, that's a dead end. It's a dead end. It results in, in, in really unfortunate consequences. I always will remember Mahatma Gandhi, he said, you know, um, um, I love your Christ, but not as Christians, something to that effect, because of the hypocrisy he saw and he saw, that he saw in the way that in a world in which everybody was supposedly Christian, most people didn't really, didn't really act like it. So even these words, we are, these are words for us. Be on our guard. Stand firm in your faith. Learn what your faith is. I had a little, I had a, several meetings pop up on my email last night. I didn't know what they were. These were meetings to talk about the St. Andrew Glossary. And I didn't know what that was, and so I called Lauren. Of course I did, because she will know. Um, she, yeah, so she said, Scott, I do know what that is, and this whole thing was your idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, oh no, not again. Well, what was my idea? She said, we were talking about new things to do in, you know, in, in the next year, and you said, well, one of the things we probably we could do would be to go through the vocabulary that we use with the children and the students and the adults and kind of pull that together and make sure that we, that we have like, it's sort of like a glossary, but it's really making sure that we talk to the children correctly and the students correctly and to the adults correctly about the Christian faith, about the words that we use. Now, what do we mean when we say repent? What do we mean when we say salvation? What does Advent even mean? Okay, we have a lot of words like that. So, um, and she said, yeah, Scott, you've got to remember this, okay? Everybody thought it was a good idea. We went to the next meeting. Everybody thought that was a great idea. So that's what these meetings are about. So I said to her, well, I guess that means I have to go to the meetings. <laughs> okay, so it is a good idea. Because I taught, I taught, I used to, um, back in my, MBA days and some of my teaching days in business, I taught finance. What does that seem like a foreign world to me now? I taught finance. 
And I learned that if you could master the vocabulary of finance, you had largely mastered the subject. I think that's true with Christianity. We use a lot of words. If you can really, that's why there's so many books that say like 80 Hebrew words you, ne you need to know. You know, the most important words in the Bible or whatever, because the vocabulary expresses, expresses the message. And so we have to learn that, yeah. Yes. Trying to get people to understand how people understood those words or used those words in the first century, because it's, it's totally different. Well, it's often very di it's often very different because Scott, yeah, I, I'll repeat the question. So Don is bringing up that one of the authors that he likes talks about the fact that we need to we read this in English. There are a lot of important words that we need to understand what they meant to the original readers. Okay, like repentance or like sin, and that is, that's, that's really one of the key tasks of preaching, is, is helping people do that, because we just bring to them the meanings that we have today for these words, and they're not, there's, they're not necessarily what Paul has in mind when he uses them 2,000 years ago. And a lot of words that we now have as sort of church words, they weren't church words back then. They were just words that people used. And I have um, on my bookshelf, but increasingly on my computer, just volumes of, of there's a 10-volume theological dictionary of the New Testament, which is nothing but, nothing but, taking the Greek words and looking at all of the background and all of the meaning, trying to help bridge that gap. And so that's, he's spot on. We do, we have to, you know, and you could say, well, do we really have to do that, Scott? Can't it just, but you see, but this is, St. Andrew is a thoughtful, educated congregation. And we can do this. And if we can do this, we should do this. It should. It should be that we want to understand these words, you know, but, and, but part of it is making sure that we use the words properly with respect to the children and the students and the adults, okay? And, and some of that is going to be, it's going to be about making sure that we, the staff, understand better what they, what they mean, right? And what they mean when we read them in Scripture and, and if the meaning has changed some, um, or a lot in our use of them, then incorporating that because it's it's like the word it's like the word it's like the word repent. Okay, so it was a, just a just a word used in their day to talk about changing direction, like 180 degrees, and embracing a new leader. Because you find it used with respect to 
two competing what rebel bands <laughs> rebel groups and so it's repentance is leaving this guy and his group and heading over here why don't you repent it isn't really simply being sorry for what you did or uh, um, being sorry for your sins it is this u-turn in life so every time that you dive into a word like that there's a sermon there there's a sermon there there is because it's it's powerful to do that you know it is so so he says be on your guard look back to verse 13 stand firm in the faith be courageous It's not easy. It's not, it's easy to follow the culture. It's easy to follow the culture. It takes courage to not follow the culture when the culture is leading us away from the good news of Christ, when the culture is leading us to, to, um, leading us away from the kingdom and it's just that's been the story for 2,000 years for 2,000 years it's been this way and it will be this way until Jesus comes back because it's a struggle so be courageous we can lift each other up and keep each other strong be strong he says and do everything in love everything in love means do everything love be willing to put others ahead of yourself. Set aside your selfish ambitions. Be helpful to others. Be helpful to those who you don't know, who you don't even like, who you find irritating. <laughs> right? Do everything in love. Larry. I think, I think, Larry, our challenges are more indirect. And the fact that Christians over the last 50 years have not done terribly well with those challenges is how we ended up with large parts of Christianity in America being a folk religion, that moralistic therapeutic deism that we've talked about here in the church. And as evident, whenever the researchers start talking particularly to youth about what they believe it's sort of this you know be nice right um, God is here to help me through difficult times kind of Christianity and that's was that's kind of it that's what the researchers find and they say that well where where do where do the where do the 17-year-olds and 13-year-olds, where do they learn that? Well, they learn it at home. And where do the adults learn it from? They learn it from pulpits. And it's, it's, so I think it's been insidious. 
and that's that's how it's that's how it's happened. Because I know I believe that when I look across Christianity in America, that there has emerged this folk religion. Because maybe people, I'm not saying people were more ethical 60 years ago, so we could have that conversation. A lot of people now don't even, they don't even understand their questions to ask. It's like 20 years ago, Patty and I were leaving the sanctuary and one teenage, Robert Hasley has preached of all people, and he actually used the word sin in his sermon. Not typically Robert Hasley. And one teenage girl says to her girlfriend within earshot of us that, gosh, I hate it when they talk about sin. You know, I get that. Who wants to? But without an understanding of sin, none of this makes any sense. No sense whatsoever. So it's, it's I think it's just been insidious, Larry. That's the thing. It's been, what has it like, been like? It isn't like we have soldiers showing up at the door telling us to lock up or they're going to throw us in the hooskow for, you know, worshiping. It's, 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 we're, we're more like the frog in the pot, right? Or the lobster in the pot doesn't know what lies ahead and you just turn up, right? It's, it's more like that. It's been more insidious. And so we end up with these, with this, this, this folk religion and I don't know of any thoughtful surveyor of American Christianity who denies what has happened to American Christianity. When you look at the broad, because I told you, when we, when we started looking at this moralistic therapeutic deism and, and the research behind Christian Smith's work and those who work with him and Ken DeCreasy Dean and others, it is re, I, I have a PhD in doing social science research. It, this was really good work that they did. Very, very time consuming, very in depth, very done over long periods of time. They, it was good research. And the end, at the end, none of it was surprising to Robert Housing or to Arthur Jones or to me, or I suspect to a lot of preachers in America. So there we go, insidious. So we, we have to, we have to teach ourselves what the good news is and the implications of the good news and be courageous and be strong and do everything in our life in love. Just as he's telling these people. And I don't think our task is any less, less challenging. You know, in their world, Christianity was on, was spreading. In America, what's happening to Christianity? It's on the decline. Now that's worldwide, I don't know that you can say that because it's exploding in places like Africa and Asia and other places, but in, in Europe it's long declined. But it's, it's the same thing seems to be happening here. And part of the, why, did, why is, I'm, I, okay, so why is that happening here? Well, I think part of it is it's simply, you know, a religion that says, okay, be nice. God's your therapist once in a while when you need one. That's just not enough. That's just, there's just, there's, 
There's, there's just not enough there for somebody to be willing to dedica dedicate their life to that. Be nice. Be nice. You know, it doesn't even explain to you why you can't be nice enough. Why, why, why isn't everybody else nice? I'm trying so hard. There's no explanation for it. It's just a thin little, little layer of this moralistic therapeutic deism. That was Christian Smith's research lead. His, his, his name for it. It's important. Okay, enough of that rant. Verse 15. You know, Paul writes, that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. That's in, uh, let's call it Greece. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. It's always cool when we come, when I, when we come across names. Like that, that, that's a dude that lived 2,000 years ago. It's his family we're talking about. And here we are sitting here in Plano, Texas, and there we are reading about Stephanus. The first converts in Greece, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people. We all have something to learn. Your growth as a Christian, which should never end, will be helped if you have, if you have like role models and people that you could look to. And I've certainly been blessed to have more than a few in my life. And some of them are with us now. Um, I'm married to one, um, but there have been others and some have passed. Charles Stokes. Robert Hasley and some congregation members, some of who have passed. There are people that I have learned from and I look to and I have tried in ways large and small to model myself after. That's how it is. Then and now. So he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Yeah. We're all in this. It says, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Which is probably, what does he mean? What could he mean? He probably doesn't mean money. He probably just means news. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve set recognition. It's just a lifting up the work that they do, it's a little bit cryptic, but, you know, that's okay. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that Paul has to have his spirit refreshed? You ever feel like you need to have your spirit refreshed? You need to be kind of, you're kind of down on the dumps, right? And you feel like, man, you know, and you want, you know, even Paul. Why even Paul? Because he's human. That's part of the human experience, to be down in the dumps and to be needing to be refreshed. And it is other people who refresh him. I don't know who all these people are. I don't think we know anything else about Fortunatus or Achaicus. 
But they came and they refreshed Paul. They kind of picked him up. They brought him good word. Perhaps they're the ones who brought him good news about what's happening in Thessalonica because he was concerned about them and he feared for them. And these guys show up and they say, it's going great. They're really good. They're very faithful. You should see people are talking about them and their faith, Paul. Really, you're not doing this for nothing, Paul. How? Oh, right? It's just even Paul, even Paul needs, needed to be refreshed. Okay, thoughts, questions, before we turn to the final greetings that Paul has at the end of this very long letter. Anything? Yes. Yeah, the Spirit in the Sanctuary on Sunday was awesome. The whole experience was... I hope everybody left there Sunday morning after worship feeling refreshed and lifted up. Right? Right. And it's days like that that you, that you get uh, a bold witness that this is why we do what we do. This is why we come to this building that it's not just a building but a holy place. And to see the room so full and to see the reaction so positive. And then Well, that's why we all have to help each other sustain, try to sustain those feelings. Recognizing, right, when you, there are times when you won't feel the way that you wish you felt. We can't have that top of the mountain experience every week because you know what would happen to, if we tried that? It would no longer be a top of the mountain experience. Right, it would become very mundane. So you have to appreciate those kinds of warnings when they come along and look back on the memory of them. And now we have photos and recordings and other things that we can use that, so that the next week when you come to worship, you can remember that, but also be reminded of this, Sharon, that, that we are, that this is a really good expression from one, one professor. It's, Worship is God's gymnasium. It's where we come to allow God, we come to be trained by God, right? We're not, the, there's, we're not an audience, right? That's the only thing that can happen on those mountaintop days when you're just kind of sitting there, you're just the audience. That's why it's, I think it, maybe it's kind of good that now that music, all that stuff is wrapped, is part of a worship service. And because I like the fact that we stand up and sit down and we, stand up and sit down and we pray together and all that other stuff that we do in worship because we can't ever see ourselves just as an audience and leave thinking, well, what did I get out of that today? Right? We're there, we're there for God's benefit. Yes? Yeah, we can't be entertained. Yeah, it's not, it's not, I want to be entertained when I go to See, there are a lot of places to be entertained. John Ortberg is a really wise teaching pastor, written many books any of which I would recommend. And um, he said, you know, as a preacher, it is so tempting to roll out the elephants. <laughs> right? He says, I know how to do that. He says, I know how to roll out the elephants. Right? But 
I have to resist the temptation because it's not about rolling out the elephants. It's not about being entertained. And, and when you get too much of that, what are you doing? Where else do we want to be entertained? In every other part of our lives. We want to be entertained by the news. That's why there's 24-hour news channels. Yeah. Um, there was a really good book written a long time ago by a guy named Neil Postman, who was a commentator on culture. And I'm going to butcher the title of his book, but it, um, it's something, it was something like entertaining ourselves to death. And he was commenting particularly on the news. He said, We've we're turning news into entertainment. And he says, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. And we want to be, enter I, I like being entertained. I'll, I'll sit down and front of my TV, you know, and put something on and let it, let it entertain me. But somehow worship has to be different. And we can't let the two become the same thing. Very good. Thank you. That's awesome. Yes? It's me, your wife. Hi, Patty. <laughs> Hi, my name is Scott. Hey, how are you? How yes. Are you? I remember one time you explaining it as um, what we're kind of talking about is that many of us, and I always thought of it this way myself, like I'd come out of the sermon and go, well, that was kind of a good sermon, or I didn't get much out of that today, or that kind of thing. And you kind of explained it as when we go to worship, God is the audience, not us. It's not there for us to be. If you want to use the word audience, use it with respect to God, not ourselves. Right? And that we have to participate because it is to God. And, you know, when we just kind of sit there and we're deciding whether or not the preacher spent enough time on his sermon and all that kind of stuff. If you, it's easy. It's easy. Preachers feel the weight of the bar being raised ever higher in terms of people's desire to be what to have to be smash banged in the face by the sermon, and it's not fair. The preacher's job, it, the preacher's job, is to bring the good news and to try to connect that to our lives as best as the preacher can. But the first part of it is to preach the good news. Paul says what? I show up, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I preach Christ and Him crucified. I preach Christ and Him crucified. People did not come to Paul for lessons on being a better parent. You can get lessons, and we don't do that kind of stuff here at St. Andrew if you realize. We don't really preach those kinds of series because you could get that stuff anywhere. There's a thousand places to go with lessons on being a better parent. We are here to preach the good news and help you understand what the good news is so you can grasp the, the wonder. That's the word I'm, I'm into now. The wonder of what God has done for us. So, anything else anybody would like to add? Since you two introduced each other, what are your pronouns? <laughs> Who let you out of the corner? That's my question, Gary Brooks. <laughs> Who let you out of the corner? Okay, so now the Paul's final greetings. There's an interesting little bit here. He says, the church is in the province of Asia. That's Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. That's what he's talking about. Because he seems to be writing 
this letter perhaps, probably from Ephesus. The churches of the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. We talked about them. They are mentioned several places in Paul's letters. They get a lot of their story in the book of Acts. They are prominent in the New Testament. If you watch the movie Paul the Apostle that came out a few years ago, um, I think Priscilla and her husband are well portrayed. I like that, the portrayal of the two of them busily, busily, busily doing the work of spreading the good news and copying Paul's letters and sending them on and, and so forth. Totally involved in the ministry. So Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And for Paul, that's, ne that, that's, that's never more than a few words away in the Lord in Christ, right? It's, he's living in this new world and it shapes everything he does, everything he says, everything he writes. And he wants the other Christians who are being baptized and into um, the faith to realize it. I greet you warmly, Priscilla and Aquila greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. All of the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It seems that at this time, you know how we pass the peace? You know, so we pass the peace sometimes with a handshake, sometimes with a hug. It seems that they did it with a little, like a little kiss on the cheek or something like that. Nothing more. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's just a, you know, it's just, yeah. Think of it as when we pass the peace. We should probably pass the peace more often than we do in worship. Maybe I'll bring that up. And the trouble is, I'm going to bring it up, and then I'm not going to forget I ever brought it up. That's, that's my problem. Lauren will have to remind me that I brought it up. How old are you again? I have no idea. I've lost count of that. Too old. Now look at verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So now you've got all this other stuff before. Who's writing that? Who's putting that down on paper? Paul? Nope. A scribe. Um, maybe Timothy, maybe not Timothy. Is Timothy with him now? Um, yeah, when Timothy comes, maybe, but it's it, as likely to be a scribe whom is helping Paul or is hired by Paul because it was a profession, a skill, a trade, to write because you, it was very expensive and live came across a reference once It said an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper filled with text front and back in this world would cost a week's wages for the average person. Very expensive. So the scribe and would, would write and that's why the text, if you ever see a manuscript from this Time, you'll see that there are no spaces, there are no paragraphs, there are no capitals and small letters, there is no punctuation. It's just nothing but strings of characters in big blocks. Wow, 
Okay? What a challenge to us now to imagine trying to, to read that. And so now, Paul, somebody's been doing this for Paul. How much freedom is, is Paul literally dictating it word for word? Does the person who is writing this down for Paul been doing this enough for Paul that, that Paul allows that person some freedom in, in exactly what ends up on the piece of paper? I don't know. In my experience in life, that, there'd be a spectrum there, depending on how well I knew the person and trusted the person, okay? Um, I can remember the corporate world many, 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 many decades ago when you had secretaries and shorthand and stuff, you know, and the secretary would come in and sit down like take dictation and so forth. If you had a really good secretary, you would just often say, you know, a few sentences and say something like, well, finish that up for me. And then she would do a better the job than you could have done and she would finish up the letter and off it would go to so-and-so about whatever the letter was about. You didn't feel compelled to dictate every single word of the entire letter. But that's how it was. I don't know. But he picks up the pen, now Paul, so he's writing it on his own, with his own hand, and it's gonna be obvious to anybody, because he's not a professional at this, he's not, this is not his skill. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Paul, Paul was very zealous for Jesus. And he has experienced a lot of problems with people. And he's experienced people coming in and leading Christians astray. And he has no patience. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Now, is this letter destined to be read by humanity at large at the time? No. No. This is, this is spread among the Christian communities. So, but, but, but people who are part of these communities and, and there's, there, there are people in the community who don't love Jesus, you know? Yeah, they need to take a good look at themselves. So he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come Lord Jesus, in the Aramaic, Maranatha. You've probably heard the word Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus, what is he talking about? He's talking about this. This was a very immediate prospect for people for the Christians in 50 AD or so. Come Lord Jesus, you know, we're doing this work, come on, come. So even, and that's how the book of Revelation basically ends, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And still we can say, come Lord Jesus. You can look at a world racked by sin and pain and you can say, come on. Even as you understand that there is so much goodness in this world, right? so much you just have to you, you just have to see it and not allow yourself to be swamped by by the poison and the violence that's out there but um, certainly sometimes I out of my prayers come the words you know Maranatha come Lord Jesus 
And then he says in verse 23, the grace, isn't that good, such a good word. One, in one eye, out the other, grace. God's un, it's the unmerited kindness of God. The unmerited favor of God. Unmerited because you don't deserve it. If you deserve it, if you deserve it it's not grace. That's not what the word is about. The word is about giving you something that you don't deserve, you haven't earned, you can't pay for. It's just outright, utter, 100% gift. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. In Christo, in Christ. They're all in Christ. They're all participating together in Christ. They are the body of Christ. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Which is this word of affirmation at the end there. Whether it's in the Greek or the English. So, that's it. That's the letter. And it's pretty cool to me that Paul decided to pick up a pen and write some things out there himself and if you remember the letter you know he has said you've seen his um, care for the Corinthians and you've seen his concern for the Corinthians and sometimes he just could not believe what the Corinthians were doing right so you go back to chapter 5 that's where the guy is sleeping with his father's wife and nobody seems to care about it. So, so Paul has tried to address head on the issues in Corinth and directed them to a life of love. Yes? I don't think so. I don't think it's the only place it's in the New Testament. If I go to Revelation, turn to Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I think that's another Maranatha. But I would have to have uh, a Greek New Testament open to check that. But I, I think if I said that then, I might well have been wrong. You see, that's the problem with what I do. Some portion of what I say is wrong. I just don't know what portion it is. Right? An older Bible, yeah, a long time ago. Yes. Okay, so that, very good. So see, I was right back then, which means, well, okay. So when you come to the same formulation in English in Revelation 22, what is it? It's in the Greek. It's still the same words. It's still the same thought. It's still the same idea, but it's in the Greek, not the Aramaic. <laughs> see, isn't that cool? Yeah, that's cool. Yes.
We have some sense of that. Okay. From the scriptures, from the New Testament, and okay. for example, the book of Acts, early on we know that they were gathering to pray okay. together, to live together, right? Probably saying psalms, singing, because psalms were sung. Arthur did that, didn't he do that on Sunday? Hmm. Anyway, yeah, a little bit of something, something like that. We know that they, they know that they were very quickly were taking communion because we got instructions, basically, for communion in this letter. First Corinthians, written when? Maybe 53, 52, something like that. So it was a little more than 20 years after Jesus' death, death and resurrection. Communion, this Lord's Supper, this breaking of bread is all... Now, it, it was done differently. It was much more meal-like than ours is. But you read it, and wow, all those words are the words that we use. And so you see, and when you come to the end of the first century, there's a writing, a book, um, not a book, but it's, it's decently, decently in length, called the Didache which is an instruction manual, sort of, for churches. And it talks about worship, talks about communion, talks about baptism. And so over the time, you can see worship developing into something more like we do now. Now, I think, personally, I think that when Christianity becomes a state religion in the Roman Empire. The Christians, Christianity quickly is almost forced to take on lots of trappings. Lots of priests and all kinds of things like that, which I think, you know, is still with us. And I'm kind of a Protestant guy, right? So I think we have to be good at kind of stripping away some of that. But the basics of it, um, uh, are, are what they did in the first century, and you can see it developing in the first century. That's good. Question. Any, anything else before I make a few closing remarks? It also notes that it is in the Didache. Maranatha is also in the Didache, because it's just, it's just the Aramaic expression for come Lord Jesus. But you could say the same thing in Greek, or you could say the same thing in English. Anything? Okay, so I got one, one more slide. Oh, okay, there we go. So just a couple of ideas I want to leave you with before we leave 1 Corinthians, because next week is the party, and I saw the sheet circulating, right? And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk a little bit, little very 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 brief history of Christmas and how it is only less than 200 years old the Christmas we all know next week and then on January 3rd we will be back here to begin the book of Samuel okay I've used these slides often enough in the last few months that you should understand that 1st Corinthians is absolutely written within this apocalyptic worldview it's what drives Paul, it's what shapes Paul's understanding of the world. Okay? This already and not yet. This very, this very idea. And if you don't get this, a lot of what he says is going to have to go in one eye and out the other. 
because it's not going to really make sense. And then what, ha what do people do then? Ah, they just let it go without really understanding what he's doing. Second key theme, the em our embodied existence. We are embodied now. When we die, we will be disembodied. But then we will be re-embodied when we are all resurrected, when Jesus comes back. And that whole story, Paul is acutely aware of and understands that it is fundamental to being Christian. And um, I, I've told the story many times. There's, there was a New Testament scholar of Gerd Ludman um, who in, I don't know, let's call it 20 years ago, just lost his confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. And he was honest enough to stop calling himself a Christian. Because if you don't believe in the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus, just use, call yourself something else. Because it is the linchpin. And in resurrect, it, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it clear that you can't separate Jesus' resurrection from the promise of our own. It's one package, one harvest, right? As Paul puts it. And this last one is the primacy of love. Even here, he writes, do everything in love. 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding <laughs> chapter, right? Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So you can't let those words just become wedding words, right? Paul isn't writing them for a, to be used in a wedding. Paul is very, he's a very concrete kind of guy, right? So he's writing those words in 1 Corinthians 13 so that we can understand that we are called to a very different life than the world sees for itself. Because the definition of love in which we operate is self-sacrificial. Philippians 2, different letter. Putting aside our selfish ambitions, putting the interests of others ahead of our own. That's what love is. And that's what Paul calls us to. And it's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus says, ah, anybody. You know, it's easy to love your neighbor. You know? But you've got to love your enemy. And that only makes sense if you don't see it as a sentiment, but see it as something that you do. Because you can behave in certain ways even to your enemy. You may not feel like doing it, but it's not the feelings that have to drive this. It is the doing that has to drive this. It is the actions that have to drive this. God didn't just love the world. God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, you see? God didn't, doesn't just call us and us alone to action. God himself led the way in expressing love. How? Not just in a sentiment or in words, but in the giving of his son. So, there we go. Love means what? It needs to be in your glossary. Love needs to be in my glossary. Darn right it has to be in my glossary. Because so often being picked up as a 
Ro yeah? Yes. Violins and roses. Yes. Yes. Well, there's really not even a piece of that, Sharon. There's, there's no piece of romance in the New Testament understanding of love. And people make that mistake because sometimes people talk about, well, you know, I'm like in love with Jesus. Okay, fine. You're supposed to put your faith and trust in Jesus, but he's not... In love is getting too... Too romantic. Too romantic. The, the word in the Greek is eros, E-R-O-S, where love is, love is a desire at, at, at an object. And it's not that, no, no. So, yeah. Okay, I'll make sure it gets in this glossary that I completely forgot about. <laughs> Susan. Let me just repeat that for the benefit of the folks online, and even if you couldn't hear Susan, because I have trouble hearing you, but I'm old. Um, at the 11 o'clock service on Christmas Eve, we do communion, but we need servers at 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve to help out with communion. And so anybody can help out. It is a thrilling thing to serve communion to somebody. I'm telling you, if you've never done it, just, just do yourself the favor. And so Susan needs some servers at 11 o'clock. And if you're already planning on coming to the service, then just help out and serve people communion. You will not regret that. And it's, yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not difficult. It's very, it's, it's, it's profound. It's profound to do that if you've never experienced it before. So there we go, Susan, that right? Okay. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, help us to take these words from Paul, even in the closing. Take them into our heart, our minds, our life, that we might do everything in love, that we might be courageous and strong, that we might stand firm in our faith, that we would do all with it we can to build up the body of Christ, that we would do all we can to be a good witness to others. For this is the life to which you have called us, and this is the life we have embraced. Help us to be, help us to live every day in the sheer wonder of your love and your grace and in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, whose birth we are soon to celebrate. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.